this morning is from the book of Psalms. We're doing a series all summer in the book of Psalms called Seasons. Our passage is uh, this morning from Psalm 51. Psalm 51. The passage will be up here on the screen. If you do have a Bible, we would encourage you to pull that out and follow along with us. There are some blue Bibles available in some of the seat baskets in some of the rows. And so if you can see one of those, please pull that out. And um, if you don't have a Bible, now you own a Bible, please take that with you when you leave. I want to make a few comments. Uh, This is a heavy topic. The title of this sermon, for the first time in the history of our church, is literally called Sin. Um, So if you came here and someone brought you and said, you know, they're not one of those heavy-handed kind of churches, and now you're like, okay, so they're preaching. The sermon is called Sin. I actually think that you will be strangely encouraged uh, by Psalm 51, so hang in there. And then secondly, our series is called Seasons. We're, we're talking about walking with God through various seasons of our lives. We've talked about shame and discontentment and fear and despair. There's a sense, though, in which sin isn't seasonal. We're always, unfortunately, wrestling with it. However, there are seasons in which we become particularly aware, we might say, of our sinfulness, such as in the context of an especially grievous sin or or repetitive sin, lots of possibilities, and that's mainly what we have in mind this morning. And then third, and finally, we just do not have time to hit every part of Psalm 51. We could preach 10 sermons on it, but God, in his mercy, I trust will help us make a lot of hay, and if you are interested in learning more, then learn more. Read it. Chew on it. Meditate on it. Let's talk more about Psalm 51. If you are physically able to stand, please stand for the reading of God's word. If you're not able to stand physically, stand in spirit. Amen. And if you don't feel like standing in spirit, then maybe the Lord will use this passage to encourage your hearts and lift up your heads this morning. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from what guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Fill up the walls of Jerusalem 
Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that we would experience necessary conviction of sin this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit, especially that sin that has been kind of lingering in the recesses of our hearts that we can't see, we're, we're blinded to. And Father, as we experience that conviction, I pray that this passage would help us experience your grace in such beautiful and full abundance. We love you, we trust that you will edify us and change us. That's what we desire, Lord. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. For the first couple years of City Church's existence, we had Sunday services right across the street at Jolie's, which it's not called that anymore, but at the time it was a rental space for events like weddings and banquets and so forth. One Sunday morning when we arrived to set up the space for our service, we found this black banner that was hanging over our entrance that said sin in bright red letters but spelled with a Y. So we looked sin up online with a Y and discovered that it was the name of a newly established nightclub that was renting Jolie's on Saturday evenings. And we also discovered that their catchphrase was, and I'm not making this up, let's transgress together. So it was sin, and the catchphrase was, let's transgress together, which meant that we had something of a, a cosmic throwdown on our hands every weekend. So on Saturday night, sin was inviting people to transgress together very boldly, and then on Sunday mornings, we were saying, actually, we're not so sure about that, you know? Um... How about let's not transgress together? And then on and on it went week after week. You can be the judge of what to make of this, but let's just say that sin is no more, and we are still here, amen? I think, (laughs) yep, I think that kind of preaches a bit, but you can tell me after the service. Here's a saying that, though, about that that catchphrase. They, They used it for a reason. I think kind of a clunky reason, but they, they use it for a reason. They were, they were appealing to widespread human curiosities about sin, that it might not be that big of a deal after all, and might actually be rather exhilarating and, and make us happy. You know, they were saying something like, yes, you're, you're on to something, follow your heart and do things your way, and, and thereby experience pleasure and Enjoy. That's the point. And sin can be quite pleasurable, at least for a moment, sometimes for a very long moment. But sin, which is essentially, if not reductionistically here, it's essentially doing things our way instead of God's way, it has this annoying habit of really letting us down. Of, of leaving us with a hollow feeling that something is very off. And when followers of Jesus become aware of their sin, it can be a very disorienting 
and discouraging and shame-filled experience. We knew better, but we sinned anyway. And in some cases, our internal distress becomes akin to the plight, if you're familiar, of Shakespeare's Lady Macbeth, famously besieged with guilt on account of her sin, I would say, to the point of insanity trying to rub away a spot of blood that she imagined to be on her hands. So what can we do in seasons when we become keenly aware of our sinfulness? Perhaps on account, as I said earlier, of a particularly egregious sin or maybe repetitive sin that just keeps happening again and again and we can't shake Two exhortations this morning, two now what's as we make our way through this psalm. Number one, be honest, and then number two, be confident. What should we do when we become aware of our sin? Be honest, but also be very confident. Let's start with that first exhortation, be honest. Be honest about what? The gravity of our sin. The title of Psalm 51, you can probably see this if you have a, a Bible open before you, it describes the composition of this psalm to King David, specifically in the context of his relationship with Bathsheba, which you can read about for yourself in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. To give you the gist of this, I'll read the first five verses of 2 Samuel chapter 11, then do some summarizing after that. So this is 2 Samuel Chapter 11, first five verses. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. What did David do about this pregnancy announcement? Well, plan A was cover-up. He gave her husband Uriah a break from the battlefield, hoping that he would lie with his wife Bathsheba and ultimately believe that her pregnancy was his doing. However, Uriah was a, a godly and, and loyal soldier and refused to take any kind of refreshment while his fellow soldiers were actively at war with the Ammonites. Plan B was murder. David told his general to send Uriah to the forefront of the very hardest fighting and then to draw back from Uriah that he might be killed by the opposition, which is exactly what happened. David murdered Uriah <laughs> under the guise of a wartime casualty. 
So work with me here. Abuse of power for the sake of sexual gratification, deception, murder. It doesn't get a lot worse than this. Even in our increasingly, I would argue, permissive cultural moment, all of these things are still on the bad list. And yet, this sequence is, is much, much worse than we're inclined to believe. Look at the first four verses of Psalm 51, written by David at some point after the prophet Nathan confronted David and brought his sin to light. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Isn't verse 4 the most offensive thing you've ever heard in your entire life? Despite the evil that David has done to Bathsheba and Uriah and so many other people, David has the gall to say that against God, and God only, he has sinned. This is, this is gaslighting. This is, this is manipulation. Actually, no. Although the following clarification is very offensive in its own right. David knew that the transcendent creator, God of the universe, is the one who defines and judges right and wrong, which meant that David's actions were sinful on account of God's wisdom and authority. In fact, outside of God's wisdom and authority and defining morality, it's uncomfortably difficult to objectively call David's behavior wrong. Attempts to standardize morality outside of God's transcendent authority continue to be made again and again, but I find them to be severely deficient. David also recognized that God's standard of right and wrong undergirded the covenantal relationship that God had established with David and with all of Israel. God was going to be his and their God simply on account of his mysterious and gracious love for them, not because they deserved it more than anybody else. And in return, they were going to live according to God's standard. At that point, most explicitly spelled out in the Mosaic Law. So work with me here. This is really important. You can do it. David sinned against God only because aside from God's existence and authority, there would be no sin. And David sinned against God only because he intentionally pursued a standard of living that contradicted God's standard and was therefore anti-covenantal and anti-relational and pro-enmity. 
The onlyness was therefore an honest acknowledgement of the hideousness of David's sin against the perfectly holy and authoritative God of all creation. And mind you, that hideousness gives us the moral footing we need to establish the horror of what David did to Bathsheba and Uriah. So on one hand, we can speak of the onlyness of sin because it's so offensive to God that the offensiveness to others almost falls from view. But on the other hand, the onlyness of our sin against God establishes and exposes the offensiveness of our sin against others, who, by the way, are made in the image of that God. Now we're really offended because sin is it's just, it's much worse than we thought it was. It's not just a horizontal problem. It is that. It's a vertical problem. And in fact, it's a horizontal problem because it's a vertical problem. All of which helps us explain both our contemporary zeal to minimize the seriousness of our sin and our failure to find any true relief in doing so. You can't, just, you can't just live with this dissonance. You have to do something about it. And minimization is really, really tempting, even for Christians, because it's far less invasive and uncomfortable than doing the surgery. Minimization it's a cortisone shot that provides quick relief. And many, many cultural doctors are very happy to prescribe it and affirm it. Well, you know, this is just, this is just a really stressful season. God won't fault me for doing a little something for myself. It's a cortisone shot. Or, you know, as, as long as my actions don't adversely affect other people, it doesn't really matter how I'm living. Or, yeah, kind of... And I kind of messed up here, but God is still using me. I can see him at work through me, so it can't, be, you know, it can't be that bad. Or, and this is a really sneaky one, yeah, this is just another example of my brokenness. It's sneaky because brokenness is actually an effect of our sin, not a synonym for sin, which means that we can talk about brokenness kind of generally and, and vaguely without taking ownership for our sin and acknowledging the weight of it. And because some of our brokenness, sometimes a lot of it, really is the fault of other people who have sinned against us, talking about our brokenness can be a very convenient conduit for saddling other people with the responsibility for the sin we've committed in addition to the sin that they have committed against us. Those are the things we do. These are the cortisone shots that we give, but attempts to minimize our sin ultimately fail because they do not diagnose and address the severity of the problem. Cortisone shots, you know what, you know what they do. They, they alleviate the pain, but they don't actually fix the shredded ACL. And actually, man, I hope you're feeling really seen today. If you're an orthopedic or a PT, this is your day. Actually, the alleviation can mask escalating damage. And then when the shot wears off, we find ourselves in an even worse position. 
So to actually fix the problem, we're going to need the surgery, which starts with a very honest diagnosis of the problem. Thus far, we've been speaking rather negatively about David, and, and justifiably so. But kudos to him in this case for modeling how we might deal with our sin. He honestly mapped out all of the contours of his sin, variously referring to it as his transgressions, which kind of alludes to rebelliousness. You can see that in verse 1 and, and elsewhere. He refers to it as his iniquity, alluding more to distortions. See that in verse 2 and elsewhere. His, his sin, living contrary to God's standards. See that in verse 2 and elsewhere. Verse 2, it is evil in a very objective moral sense. Verse 4, then he also refers to it as blood guiltiness, which is probably a reference to shedding Uriah's blood. You can see that later in the passage. He honestly named, as well, the aggrieved party, which above all else was God, verse 4. He honestly acknowledged the past and present realities of his sin. Yes, there was sin involving Bathsheba and Uriah, but at the same time, verse 3, my sin is ever before me. So it's not like, well, I did that bad thing in the past, now I need to deal with it. It's like, no, no, there's, there's still stuff going on in the ecosystem now. And then he honestly acknowledged his sinful nature. Verse 5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. By the way, and this is really important, church, it's kind of its own sermon, sort of an, an aside, but naming the contours of his sin was possible because he knew the standard, because he knew God's law. The only way that we can really and honestly name sin is by committing ourselves to really knowing the standard, to knowing God's word, and then allowing God to convict us accordingly by the power of of the Holy Spirit. When confession is anemic or non-existent in our lives, there's a very solid chance it's related to an anemic relationship with Scripture. But when we're really in it, as we talked about in Psalm 1, when we're meditating on it, when we're, when we're chewing on it and treasuring it, it makes us honest. It's a bit of a truth serum. And consider the benefit of honesty in David's life. The diagnosis made David aware of his need for a really good doctor. And in fact, it drove him in desperation to the doctor. You see this? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Minimizing our sin keeps us from going to the great physician, delivering us instead to other doctors who are ultimately, to borrow a word that my dad used all the time, quacks. But honesty brings us before the Lord, the only one who truly can heal us and genuinely wants to heal us. I am increasingly concerned I'm saying this with as much compassion as possible. I am increasingly concerned that, that Western Christians, in an attempt to be more compassionate, that's my charitable take anyway, 
are, are handing out a whole lot of cortisone shots when their brothers and sisters in Christ are struggling dearly with sin. I'm hearing a lot of talk, a lot of songs about brokenness. I just mentioned that earlier, which is certainly a, a helpful and very important category, but cannot replace honest talk about sin. And it's not compassionate to ignore it because it keeps us from going to the Lord. It keeps us in the abyss. It keeps us in the doldrums. A lot of Christian songs on the radio these days go something like, you know, if, if, you're, if you're feeling down, you, you don't need to feel down because you're valuable and Jesus loves you. But, but why are they feeling down? If they're feeling down on account of their sin, ideally that should indeed lead to feelings of downness and, and shame that then drive them in desperation to the Lord for mercy and healing. Consider this, this mic drop here from John Chrysostom, who was the Archbishop of Constantinople and probably the greatest preacher in the late 4th and 5th centuries, late 4th century, early 5th century. This is, this is the mic drop. Listen to this. He says, be ashamed when you sin. Don't be ashamed when you repent. Sin is a wound. Repentance is a medicine. Sin is followed by shame. Repentance is followed by boldness. Satan has overturned this order and given boldness to sin and shame to repentance. Satanic theology minimizes the seriousness of sin and kind of castigates those who try to point out the seriousness of it. In fact, pointing out the sin eventually becomes the only kind of sin. God-centered theology exposes the shame and the awfulness of the sin for the sake of repentance, which leads to freedom and boldness and joy. Why boldness and joy in the wake of repentance? I'm really glad you asked, and that brings us to our second exhortation. Be confident. Be honest, but then be ever so confident. Look at the anticipated outcomes of David's repentance and appeals to the Lord for mercy and washing. Verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. When we humble ourselves before the Lord in repentance, turning away from our sin, and acknowledging our need for mercy, the Lord takes those spots that Lady Macbeth couldn't scrub out, and he makes them whiter than snow. He makes them whiter than, than fresh powder in the Rocky Mountains, and don't I want to go there right now? Mm. The hyssop plant evokes ritualistic imagery in which its branches were dipped in sacrificial blood and used to purify people or even purify things that were ceremonially unclean. For example, to purify a leper. Here the purification in Psalm 51 is from the stain of sin, from spiritual leprosy, you might say. And it is just this, it's a total washing inside 
and out. God does not do things halfway. When he commits himself to an enterprise, he does it all the way, total washing, inside, outside, no parts, untouched. And why was David so confident that God would respond to his appeals in the first place? Why did he think, you know what I should do? I should go to the Lord for mercy. And why was he confident? Verse 1, on account of God's steadfast covenantal love, his, his hesed. God is a, a covenant-keeping God, and therefore his default mode is abundant compassion when his people, even though they've acted rather anti-covenantally, appeal to him for forgiveness and mercy. Church, don't place your confidence in your, in your personal sense of value and worth, which bounces, I don't know how else to say this, my wife will love this, it, it bounces around like a beach ball and Nickelback concert, to quote Hot Rod. <laughs> it's all over the place. We're constantly being told, it's okay, you're very valuable. What happens when you don't feel very valuable? Don't place your confidence in that. Yes, we're very valuable, more more than we realize since we can't possibly capture the immensity of what it means to be made in God's image. But our confidence ultimately lies in God and in His promise-keeping character. Up there, the God described in Exodus chapter 34 as merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. In fact, God is so merciful and gracious and abounding in love that the Father sent His Son into the world becoming fully human while remaining fully God. And this Son, Jesus, laid down His life so that God could deal justly with the sin of people like David and, and you and me while simultaneously hearing our pleas for mercy and making us clean. That's the calculus. Jesus kept our part of the covenant perfectly, and then he provided his own blood for the hyssop branches that we might be purified inside and out. And what do purified people get on account of God's mercy and grace, here's what they get. Relational restoration and joy. They get God and joy. They get joy because they get God. They're related. Notice David's relational confidence before the Lord in verse 9 and then verse 11. Verse, verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. And verse 11, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. And then notice David's expectation in verse 8 and then again verse 12 that his joy was on its way back on account of his repentance. The joy, the joy was coming back. Verse 8, let me hear joy and, and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Do you see how this, this, this crushedness is now ultimately resulting in repentance and an experience of mercy and joy? And then verse 12, restore to me 
the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. The sheer grace of this is out, it's outrageous. King David, the power abuser and murderer, will nonetheless enjoy God's presence because God will not despise his broken and genuinely contrite heart. Verse 17. That's unbelievable. It's not like God austerely reads some contract and, and concludes, well, yes, he repented, so in this case I, I do need to show mercy. That's what it says in Clause 8.5. No, he, he desires to receive his repentant people. As, as Dane Ortland pointed out, now kind of famously, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, God is a doctor, as you were just talking about, and good doctors desire to heal people who come to them in need. That's the whole point. He loves to do it. And you might say to yourself, my sin is too great. Greater than power abuse for the sake of sexual gratification? Greater than deception? Greater than murder? I don't think so, and if so, I'm getting a little uncomfortable right now, but still. Greater than the sin of John Newton? The author of Amazing Grace that we were just singing earlier, who was involved in the slave trade of all things before God met him and changed him, and eventually he became an abolitionist. And then as the wonder of God's posture toward us, toward his repentant children, starts to sink in, we get so much joy. Joy that that God would respond to us this way despite the terror of our sin, the justifiable wages of which is death. Joy in light of what's in store for us as God's people, an inheritance that's filled with, that's filled with joys that are so wonderful that not a single joy in this life can compare to any of the joys that we will experience in the new heaven and earth. Isn't that remarkable? Sin minimization is a joy stealer of the highest order, church. And more of our spiritual misery than we'd like to believe is related to that diagnosis. Honesty before God and one another, accompanied by genuine repentance, is a joy giver, in large part because it maximizes our understanding and experience of God's grace. Plus, it gives us freedom. Freedom from, from the sin that, that binds us and and crushes our bones. In Christ, we get to not sin. We get to not transgress. It's a get to. That's why it's called freedom. We're here on Sunday morning to say, be free, not to scold. A few comments, I think very importantly as we close. Accurate soul diagnostics are really, really important here. Some of us here this morning are downcast because you've been naming sin and naming sin and naming sin, but you have not realized the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. You have grace in such abundance in Christ when you run to him for mercy. Know that, believe that, 
this morning. Be free from your shame. Again, remember, when you, when you repent, then you get to be bold. And some of us aren't naming sin at all. We're minimizers. Church, at best, that's a very joyless place to be. It's a miserable place to be. And at worst, it's spiritually dangerous, suggesting that maybe we don't really know the Lord, that our faith is kind of a charade. It's kind of a saying that we do. Unless there's real change in our lives that brings us to repentance and appealing to the mercy of God, we could be in serious eternal trouble. Behold the joyful habit of confessing sin and repenting of our sin with honesty and confidence, both of them, together. Will you work this into your prayer life? Not just confession and repentance, which are very important, but please, for the Lord, by the power of his spirit, to show you the stuff you're missing and hiding. That's the other terror of sin, is all the stuff you think is worse than you think, and you're also missing a lot of stuff. So you need the Holy Spirit to act. And will you work this into your relationships with other people? That they might hear about even your, your darkest stuff and grieve with you but then bring Jesus to you with joy. Imagine, think about this, imagine the experiences of freedom you might enjoy if you let even one or two trusted people into the really awful stuff. Imagine the freedom and joy found in people knowing the stuff that's as bad as you can lay out but still loving you and caring for you. If, if we allow ourselves to be known in this way, it suffocates the, the isolating designs of Satan. He's telling you, don't do that. It'll go terrible, it'll be awful. And, and sometimes it can because we're human beings and we don't always handle these things the right way. The Lord wants you to try it anyway, to take that risk. And it goes especially well when the people that are hearing about your sin are aware of their sin and humbled before the Lord and understanding of their need for mercy. Those are the kinds of people that will handle your sin with compassion and gentleness and grace. This might sound strange, but I think that one of the greatest losses of this COVID era is the loss of getting real with people concerning our sin in person. One of the greatest losses is being able to get in the same room with somebody and look them in the eye and name your sin and for them to, to hear that and to grieve with you and then to bring Jesus to you and speak it to you and sometimes to physically put a hand on you and say, yes, but there's so much mercy in the Lord. If you're here this morning, I'll say just finally, if you don't know Christ, hop on in. But buckle up. As David Pallison has said, the way God accepts us is just as I am, despite who I am, 
but intending to change who I am. Amen.